Welcome to Georgia in Play. It's so great to have you along today. I'm Leah Fleming. Lots of football is happening in Georgia. The Atlanta Falcons are on the road to Tennessee to play the Titans. In Atlanta, it's homecoming time for Spellhouse. Lots of HBCU love as Spellman College and Morehouse College celebrate their homecomings. Morehouse plays Kentucky State in the big game. Meanwhile, UGA is getting ready to celebrate homecoming next weekend. Some history now. Did you know that college football was almost canceled in Georgia? You probably didn't. Well, neither did I, but I recently read about it. On October 30th, 1897, a UGA football player died after being injured in a game. After that, UGA canceled its season and joined Georgia Tech and Mercer in disbanding the brutal game of football. Football was just too violent and dangerous, so many people thought during that time. But then a woman named Rosalind Burns Gammon wrote a letter to William Atkinson. He was the governor of Georgia at the time. And she asked that the sport not be canceled in Georgia, but instead be made safer. That, she said, would be the best way to honor her son's memory. Vaughn was her son's name. The governor agreed, and the rest is history. That's just a little history that you can say. I heard it on public radio as you hang out with friends this weekend. Later on in the show, you're going to get to celebrate fall with a corn maze. That is ahead. But first, some big news this week. The Georgia Supreme Court issued a ruling that allows the state's heartbeat law to remain in effect for now. That law, called HB 481, bans abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Most women don't even know that they're pregnant at six weeks. One woman closely watching the issue here in Georgia is Jen Jordan. Jen is a former state senator turned podcast host. She's also a lawyer. I spoke to her earlier this week. So uh, I first want to get your reaction to this this decision. Yeah, I, I don't think I was surprised because anyone who was sitting in there listening to the arguments a few months ago, um, it was clear that in terms of the majority um, of the members of the Georgia Supreme Court, they weren't really... Um, buying what Judge McBurney was selling in terms of, of, of his order. And just to kind of give folks listening a little bit of background on that, like you said, this law, um, HB 481, was passed in 2019. At the time that it was passed, um, Roe v. Wade and its progeny were still good law, the law of the land, and this law was clearly unconstitutional. There was There was no two ways about it like it violated the constitution almost in every single page of the of the bill um and uh judge jones u.s district court um federal judge here in atlanta um ruled so said this is unconstitutional sorry guys um this is about as as clear as it gets well in the interim there was a case the dobbs case that had been pushed by those on um the right and and those in the pro people who call themselves the pro-life movement um and it got up to the u.s supreme court and now the u.s supreme court looks very different um than it did even just a few years ago this would have been right after ruth bader ginsburg had passed away and amy coney barrett uh, was put on the court and so we went from a fairly stable kind of court where precedent seemed to matter and mean something um, to a court that clearly has an ideological bent and is there really um, to kind of push a certain point of view. And that's what they did in terms of Dobbs. So they basically reversed 
50 years of, of case law that had come after Roe v. Wade and said that really it's for the states to make a determination um, with respect to whether or not abortion should be banned or not. So what was the justification, the court's justification for the ruling? Basically, what, what it does is it says, look, what McBurney said was because this law went into place when um, Roe v. Wade was still good law, right? And, um, and and they couldn't do it under under the law that was prevailing at the time that it was passed. Then basically it's void under Georgia's constitution. And Georgia's constitution says this, right? Any any law that is void is is unconstitutional and unenforceable. It that I think that's clear, right? But this is such a weird thing because normally this never happens, right? Like it it is such an odd kind of confluence of of events that you have precedent and precedent is about stability and and about kind of sticking with kind of a decision so people can order their lives based on it, right? So we have this 50-year precedent that gets overturned. And so what McBurney says is, look, okay, this happened. This is really something we've never seen happen before. But at the time that this law was passed, it was void under Georgia's constitution. Um, ergo, it, it can't be enforced. Georgia legislature, clearly you can pass a law like this now under Dobbs. I mean, he was mm -hmm crystal clear in his ruling with respect to that, you can now do this. You just got to do it again, um, you know, because Dobbs is now the prevailing law. And now you can do it, just do it again. Um, and that really was the basis of McBurney's decision. Um, the Georgia Supreme Court basically said, no, nah, we're not, we're, we don't think that's right. Um, and, and honestly, I don't agree with that, but that's neither here nor there. What people need to understand, though, is that this is going to go back to McBurney now to make a decision on the substance of the argument. Um, and the substance of the argument really is that, OK, we clearly now don't have a right of privacy under the federal constitution, under the U.S. Constitution, that courts, you've held this for 50 years, but now you say it's not there. All right. All right. But we do have a right of privacy under Georgia's constitution. Um, and so this is a state constitutional challenge under our state constitution saying, well, there is a right of privacy arising under the state constitution. Um, ergo, it is unenforceable. So now that's what Judge McBurney is really going to have to wrestle with um, when it gets back down to his court. Ah. Yeah. So, Jen, so why challenge on this basis first? So both of the challenges were in the case, right? McBurney decided this one because his whole argument was, if this is a void law, then you don't have to even get to the merits, right? This law, when something is void under the Constitution, it is as if it does not exist, right? So there was no reason for him um, to actually get to the merits and, and talk about you know, is there a substantive right under the Georgia Constitution? Because he says it doesn't really matter um, because, you know, it, it, this law for all purposes under the Georgia Constitution doesn't really exist. So, you know, we can just scrap it. Right. And um, and it was easy peasy. <laughs> like it, it's one of those where 
Um, it, he wrote the order. It wasn't very long. He said, we don't even have to get into the merits of this because because it's void and and thus it is unenforceable. And really, I'll have to tell you, Leah, that I thought, granted, I've been pushing this a little a little bit from the beginning because what an elegant is kind of a is a weird word to use, but what an elegant way to deal with the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Because when this law was passed, no one thought that it would ever be enforced. No one, including Republicans, right? No one thought it would. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where I had Republicans pull me aside and say, Jen, we're just doing this because, you know, we got to we got to give something to the base. And um, this is for our voters. But, you know, and I know it's never going to get enforced. It's unconstitutional. And I was just living right. Like it's like you're playing politics with people's lives when you do something like this. Mm -hmm. No Republican in the state legislature ever thought that that this would actually um be enforced, um, particularly because it was so unconstitutional, right? Like it was like it was such a no brainer. Um, so from my perspective, what McBurney did is really basically give Republicans a second shot. Right. And look, they control the governor's mansion. They control the Senate. They control the House. They can get this thing passed again. But but at least they know that whatever they pass is actually going to go into effect. And I believe that there would be a much more measured approach. There would be a lot more stakeholders at the table, including physicians, mm -hmm. including medical schools, including all the people that that really matter and care about these issues, and maybe even some women, right? Maybe they would invite some women to actually talk about, you know, what, what this law could do to them um, or their families. And so that way, you know, the Supreme Court, the Georgia Supreme Court really wouldn't even have to step into the the mess mm -hmm. or, or the political battle. They could just say, look, it was void. But guys, y'all go just do it again. That's all you got to do. January's coming. I mean, it's pretty it's coming up pretty quick. You can just get that thing passed, passed and done and done. But instead, they decided, to, you know, they weren't just interested in in taking that route, and now it's going to come back to McBurney, and we we really are back in kind of this legal limbo again. All right. Thank you so much, Jen, for talking to us. Thank y'all. I really appreciate it. And Governor Brian Kemp reacted to the court's ruling. He put out the following statement. Quote, I applaud Justice Colvin and the Georgia Supreme Court for ruling today that our written Constitution controls over judge-made law. Today's victory represents one more step towards ending the litigation and ensuring the lives of Georgians at all ages are protected, unquote. Coming up, there's been extensive research that reveals that voter fraud is super rare. Yet over and over again, there have been false allegations of fraud talked about mostly by Republicans. GPB political reporter Stephen Baller took a trip to Coffee County to dig into the issue. He shares some thoughts with you just ahead on Georgia in Play. You are listening to Georgia in Play. I'm Leah Fleming. Have you got out to vote early yet? Well, there is something for you to vote on in your community this election season, even though it's not a presidential election year. Let me take you to Coffee County now. Coffee County is in southern Georgia. There is 
a new elections director there. Why? Because the former director, Misty Hampton, is under indictment by the Fulton County DA as part of the RICO prosecution against Donald Trump and others that you've been hearing about. Stephen Fowler has been reporting on all of that as GPB's political reporter and is here now to talk. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Leah. All right. So you recently visited Coffee County's elections office. It's been nearly three years since they were put on the national stage after Sidney Powell led an illegal effort to copy voting information. And I'm wondering what the mood is like in Coffee County when you went to visit. Well, Leah, down in Coffee County, it's almost like this controversy, these indictments, everything like that hasn't really happened. Um, there's a brand new elections office, a temporary space. They actually demolished the old one where it happened for unrelated reasons, oh. but they demolished it. There's brand new election equipment that have been replaced. And there's actually been several new election supervisors since that time. But the most recent one started a couple months ago as the official supervisor is Christy Nipper. Mm-hmm. I visited her, talked with her about things. Um, it was pretty business as usual in the office. She says that, you know, all she's doing in her job is focusing on having people have safe, secure, trustworthy elections from here moving forward. And so there's new people, new staff, new equipment. And from her perspective, you know, it's full steam ahead, focusing on the future, not necessarily dwelling on the past. Ah, Were you able, though, to get her to talk about it? I know one of the things she told you about was more transparency. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of questions about elections. A lot of people have started paying more attentions to how elections are run. Mm -hmm. That has come both with the positive way of uh, volunteering, getting involved, offering to help be a poll watcher, poll worker, everything like that. And also the negative of a lot of these conspiracy theories and a lot of attacks on elections officials and questioning processes and outcomes from a more conspiratorial lens. Mm -hmm. And so, The office there now, it's a local election. It's a smaller election, smaller turnout, not very many contested races. So it's kind of a good practice run for the 2024 presidential election where there will be more eyes, more attention, more partisan battles over who's actually on the ballot. So by and large, from the election office standpoint, they're trying to move past the scandal of the previous election. people in charge, the previous actions there, the previous presidential election, and move forward. And most of the residents there, too, are also kind of the same way. You don't really see people talking about it. It's not in the local newspapers. There's only a handful of people that show up to the elections board or the county commissioner's meeting talking about this. And so some of it might be kind of burying the head in the sand and not wanting to talk about things that are uh, kind of a black eye on the county and the community. Um, Some of it is people who are ready to just move on. And some of it, honestly, Leah, is people that just don't necessarily care because everything else that's happening, indictment-wise, charging-wise, everything like that, is up in Atlanta, which is uh, miles and miles and miles away, figuratively and literally, from what's going on in Coffee County. Mm. All right. So let's go up to Atlanta for a minute. Uh, We mentioned Sidney Powell, a former attorney for Donald Trump, and she's recently taken a plea deal along with Kenneth Chesborough and Jenna Ellis, both attorneys, and Scott Hall, an Atlanta-area bondsman. And they are just four of the 19 that are mentioned in Fonnie Willis's RICO indictments. What are they hoping to get with these plea deals, do you think? And and what was what will Willis, that's the more important one, get from, from them? What is she thinking about? Well, first and foremost, um, Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell taking plea deals means we don't have a trial. The two of them asked oh, for a good. speedy trial, which was set to begin last week. 
uh, with jury selection, and it was going to be a four- and five-month trial with only the two of them, not the other 17, including Donald Trump. So we don't get a trial. We don't get a sneak preview of what prosecutors were going to argue in this sweeping racketeering case. Mm -hmm. We don't get a preview of potential witnesses and defenses and things like that. But what we have right now with Kenneth Chesbrough, who helped author the plan to send fake electors to Congress Mm -hmm. in Republican or in states where Republicans didn't win, you have Sidney Powell and Scott Hall admitting their roles in this Coffee County election breach. And now Jenna Ellis, who was there in state legislative hearings where uh, she and others like Rudy Giuliani told falsehoods about Georgia's election results in effort to try to reverse the outcome. We've got all of these different pieces of the puzzle now where people admitted they did things that broke the law in service of trying to overturn the election on the behalf of Donald Trump. And so he's at the top of this pyramid, and these plea deals and the agreement to cooperate and testify and turn over evidence is just one step closer towards those other people at the top of the pyramid and more evidence to say it's not just the Democratic prosecutor or, you know, prosecutor saying, oh, this was bad, this was illegal. You've got Republicans and other people saying, yes, what we did was not legal, and here's who we did it with and why. Ah, uh, Okay. You think the ultimate goal is to get to the top of this pyramid? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's Donald Trump and Mm -hmm. a couple others like former Georgia Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer and Trump's personal attorney at the time, Rudy Giuliani, that were the key players in this conspiracy as the prosecutors lay it out. And so these plea deals are, you know, a little bit more of a nail in the coffin towards the cases against them. Mm. All right, so let's talk a little bit about conspiracy theories and perceived election insecurities. That led to the passage of Georgia's SB 202 in 2021, uh, which is an election omnibus bill. You covered this extensively. Um, You know, some voting rights groups say that this unjustly limits the rights of voters. Uh, A judge did not see it that way. Um, But you've covered the law. Remind us of how it came to be and you know, what's this retaliation for Joe Biden's win in Georgia, do you think? I think to a certain degree, yes. You know, Mm -hmm. Senate Bill 202 is 98 pages. It changed just about every aspect of voting in Georgia in some way. Now, some of the parts of the bill were things that local elections officials wanted to make things easier with Georgia's new voting equipment. Things about like reporting time and being able to process things earlier so they can have results faster and making it easier to handle some of the behind the scenes part. Some of the things changed were in direct response to a lot of these false claims made by Donald Trump and other Republicans who said, you know, this is not right. There had to be fraud or whatever, which is important to note because the election system selected by Republicans Previous voting laws passed by Republicans, and now this new voting law passed by Republicans responding to falsehoods about the Republican-led system. So there's a number of things that are kind of the lingering noticeable changes. They changed how absentee ballot drop boxes worked and how the absentee ballot request process is. It changed getting rid of some things that were pandemic era changes that made it easier for people to vote in the middle of unprecedented times. Things like a mobile voting buses that Fulton County used to help more people vote early. Um, and then there's just a lot of changes that were in direct response to conspiracy theories that people who live in places where there aren't a lot of Democrats, you know, places like Coffee County, which is overwhelmingly Republican, 
saw and heard things that they thought were true that weren't about the election and the Republican-controlled legislature and the Republican governor signed them into law to appease these people that now more directly affect how people vote in these bigger, more urban counties that have a completely different set of issues and problems and pathways that they do elections because, you know, Leah, there are some places in Atlanta where there are more people assigned to a certain polling place in Atlanta than some counties in Georgia have, period. Mm -hmm. And so it's two different sets of election problems and SB202 in many ways solved none of them. Right, right. All right. Stephen Fowler, you are GPB's political reporter and the host of the podcast, Battleground Ballot Box. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Stephen was just talking about SB202, and there have been some new developments to share with you. Earlier this month, a federal judge denied motions to temporarily block several provisions of SB202 while legal challenges play out. Several civil rights groups challenged the law, saying it'll make it harder for black voters in Georgia to vote. Anthony Michael Christ is a political observer and an assistant professor of law at Georgia State University. And I spoke with him about this earlier. Hi, Anthony. Hey, how are you? Hey, it's I'm, good to be here. It's good to have you here to talk about all of this because it can be a little bit uh, confusing. And, you know, the most important thing is that everyone wants to be able to vote easily and uh, be able to vote when they get to you know, their election place um, this November and uh, particularly next November when there's a major election. Um, you've been following SB202 very closely for a, a few years now. And with this recent decision by a federal court judge, what do you think is next for the legal challenge around SB202? Well, it, it seems as if that the plaintiffs here have a really tough uphill battle um, in terms of, of the challenge. And they always had, because what they have to show is that the General Assembly intentionally tried to discriminate um, against uh, voters of color and, and tried to make voting harder with the intention of suppressing voter out, um, you know, voter turnout. And, and that's a really difficult thing to show, right? You need evidence to show that people were, were being discriminatory in their motivation. And, and people generally speaking, although not always, um, don't necessarily say what they were thinking out loud. And so putting that evidentiary record together is a very, very um, hard thing to do. Mm. So um, the judge, what did the judge specifically say that basically the, they did not prove their case? Yeah, so so the judge is applying the, a standard for a preliminary injunction, which is slightly different than what we might see in, in a full-blown trial questioning something's constitutionality. But basically what the judge said here is that it's unlikely, um, one, that the law that was passed was unconstitutional, and two, that the harms that have been alleged here um, don't necessitate, don't uh, require or necessitate uh, immediate court intervention to enjoin the state from enforcing it. So, so the standard here is is kind of that that twofold uh, pro or that two prong uh, process. But but essentially, what the judge was saying was that the General Assembly did not, you know, there's no evidence that the General Assembly was intentionally trying to discriminate, that that a lot of the processes that came out of SB202 were, you know, kind of motivated by uh, this desire for greater election integrity and for a desire for a greater, um, you, know, uh, you know, confidence in the electoral system and the electoral administration process. And that 
that you know that's all fine and that um you know the, the complaints that are being lodged here um you know, there there isn't sufficient evidence to to back it up uh-huh. So we are anticipating massive voter turnout um, specifically for 2024, although there is a November election uh, this November. But for 2024, that's going to be the presidential election. Um, And we know that the 2022 midterm saw record turnout. So did uh, SB202 create any issues for voters during 22? Well, we did have some issues, particularly in Fulton County um, and, and in Cobb County as well, because of the the nature of the timing between the runoff uh, for the Senate election and the general election. And that was really the main, I think, issue that we saw develop because, because SB202 limited the time uh, between the general election and the runoff. It didn't provide a lot of time for uh, elections officials to prepare uh, necessarily for getting ballots out and getting people um, kind of you know ready for the second round of voting. Um, it also made it very difficult to kind of keep the same polling places open for early voting. And so there was some confusion there. And, and so you saw very long lines um, in, in Fulton County in particular um, in the early voting days. So so I think that, that was really the main issue that we saw, um, you know, now, now whether or not SB202 is the main culprit there or, you know, whether or not, um, you know, it's just kind of the nature of having trying to cram a second election in the holiday season, which was also complicating things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a lot of complicating factors there. But I think what we did learn is that it's it's really hard to have a quick turnaround. Um, and, and SB202 has really Im- imposed greater burdens on election officials, and that's harmed voters. Um, and I think that we need to re- reevaluate that. We also probably should reevaluate whether we need a runoff system at all or how we might do that in perhaps an instant runoff voting process. Um, so, so SB202, I think, um, you know, in addition to some of the other things like uh, restricting vote uh, drop box access or, um, you know, making it slightly harder to get an absentee ballot and to vote by mail. Um, you know, th- there are plenty of other criticisms to have, but uh, in terms of 2022, that I think is the main thing we saw was that that shortened time frame between general election and runoff election is really, really un, um, you know, untenable to continue going on uh, down the road. Mm-hmm. So this fight for voting rights uh, has been going on for a long time, uh, sp- specifically in the South. And in Alabama, a panel of federal judges recently redrew voting districts to uh, enfranchise black voters and the Supreme Court upheld their decision. So where are we, do you think, as a southern state in the effort to make voting access more equal? Are we getting there? Are we there? I think we're far from where we need to be. Um, I think, you know, for for all the criticisms and critiques that people have of SB202 or the praises that people are singing for SB202, what we fundamentally have to remember is why SB202 was adopted, which was uh, you know, primarily a response to Donald Trump's big lie, right? The idea that there was something wrong with our elections here in Georgia and some of these other swing states, or that there was something amiss with the way in which voting occurred or the ballots were counted here in, in Fulton County in particular. And, and a lot of that big lie was really motivated by racial grievance, right? We, we saw this idea that, that, you know, there's no way that the Atlanta, um, you know, Atlanta and Atlanta metro area could um, you know, form a coalition, a multiracial coalition, and oust um, you know Donald Trump from office by voting for for Joe Biden. And so it's that that kind of um, I think that kind of politics of grievance 
um, which fueled the big lie, which then made people feel like they had to do something um, that motivated some of what was happening here in, in the wake of the 2020 elections and the legislation that was pursued here in Georgia. And so, you know, that's a really um, that's not a good place that we, we would want to be. Um, and then you see places like Alabama um, being told, no, you actually did intentionally discriminate against black voters and you tried to diminish black voting power. And when they were told by the Supreme Court to comply with the Voting Rights Act, rather than do the right thing and adhere to the rule of law, they chose to refuse um, you know, the, to, to act, right? Mm -hmm. They chose to defy the court and to dis and to create a map that didn't um, in, enhance black uh, political power and voting power, right? So the, the the kind of defiance of the federal courts there in the year 2023 um, suggests that, that that we have a lot more work to do. And so, um, you know, I think the the next big thing that we need to look at, particularly here in Georgia, is there is a current case being tried in federal court about whether similarly in Georgia, uh, Black Georgians have had their uh, voting power diminished in the way congressional lines have been drawn. And so we're going to have to see what, what will come of that. But hopefully, I, I think that in Georgia, we will hope, have a different story than Alabama. Um, one would hope that the General Assembly, if they are told or asked to redraw lines, that they will do so um, you know, quickly, expeditiously, and adhere to whatever ruling comes out of the court. Anthony Michael Christ is a political observer and assistant professor of law at Georgia State University. Thank you so much for sharing time with us. Thanks for having me. If someone told you to hunt for your supper, what would you do? You'd probably do what most of us would do and hit up the nearest grocery store or farmer's market. Turns out fewer Americans are taking up hunting every year, and that's a trend that's causing the food that we enjoy to be more expensive. We're going to bring you more on that coming up on Georgia in Play. Back to Georgia in play. I'm Leah Fleming. Deer are becoming a growing problem for agriculture in Georgia and actually all across the South. They eat up valuable crops and there's little farmers say they can do to keep them out of their fields. GPB reporter Sophie Gratis has taken a closer look at this and reports white-tailed deer can cause millions of dollars worth of damage. Driving through the Lee family farm in Dawson, Georgia, Neil Lee says white-tailed deer are eating through his family's 10,000-acre row crop farm. This year has been by far worse than I've ever seen. In one of the farm's cotton fields. Yeah, they, they should be a plant every five or six inches. But as it, as it comes up, they just steady bite it off. Patches of dirt surround young cotton bushes with snapped branches and missing cotton bowls. The young bowls like that are still real. Juicy. It's the deer's favorite snack. See the tracks here? Deer tracks. And then if you look, I mean, just all this should be cotton. It's not. Some miles away in one of these soybean fields, the plants are ankle height near the tree line, half as tall as they should be. His peanut field looks mowed down. Lee says he's likely incurred damages in the six-figure range. We think this is one of the most like pressing issues that farmers across the state are facing right now. Adam Bellflower lobbies for the Georgia Farm Bureau. 
He says lately the Bureau's been hearing about deer in more fields. I would say it's the complaints are starting to come from more different, more commodities has been, been the big thing that we've learned. Like in cotton. We're seeing farmers that are losing significant yield. Georgia is not alone in all of this. Reports from Alabama, North Carolina, and South Carolina this year have shown row crop farmers reporting increased losses from deer damage. But while some farmers swear there are just more deer, populations in Georgia are stable. The number of deer in North Georgia has actually gone down due to habitat changes and more bears and coyotes. Charlie Kilmaster is the deer biologist for the state of Georgia. He says the more money farmers can get for what they grow, the more likely they see deer damage as a problem. As the value of crops, the amount that they can be sold for goes up, the, the number of deer control permits goes up. Deer control permits are issued by the state and allow farmers to shoot a limited number of deer in their fields. Sorry, Bambi fans. So the price for all crops has increased by almost 30 percent since 2021, but it's also gotten a lot more expensive to grow them. So farmers are less likely to pay for preventative measures against deer, like fencing, says Adam Bellflower with the Georgia Farm Bureau. If you're operating on thin margins because seed is more expensive, because fertilizer is more expensive, because diesel is more expensive, because equipment's more expensive, anything on top of that is going to make it harder to remain profitable. For Neil Lee, back in Dawson, these financial stressors are all too familiar. I mean, I've enjoyed farming, but um, it is getting... It's tough right now to survive. Lee has gotten permits to shoot deer on his land. It's helped, but those permits expire by the time hunting season rolls around in October. I feel like this is going to be, it's going to be this bad or worse from years to come until something is done. And I don't know what the answer is. Um, I do know that more need to be killed. To do that, He's planning to lease his land to hunters this fall in hopes of getting some extra protection for his crops. I'm Sophie Gratis in Dawson, Georgia. Sophie is in studio now to talk more. So hi, Sophie. Hi, Leah. Hi. So first of all, I did not know that we had a deer biologist in Georgia. That is very interesting. We learned that. Uh, also, you know, what I heard in the piece is that it's more expensive to grow crops, which means that expense ultimately is going to be passed on to us as shoppers next time we show up at the grocery store. So this indeed is an issue that affects all of us. But uh, let's first start off talking about how it affects uh, the farmers and and what you learned. What stood out for you in your reporting? Yeah, so just to your first note, I mean, obviously we're experiencing inflation of our own kind on a day-to-day basis right now. Um, but yeah, farmers, um, like you said in the intro, they're dealing with a lot right now. So the economy is kind of in a weird place for them. Um, the cost of of inputs has gone up significantly since 2020. Um, for example, the cost of fertilizer has almost doubled on an annual basis for farmers. So things like that that they have to think about purchasing every year to maintain their crops, prices for for a lot of those things have gone up significantly. So this deer problem, it's like this additional expense that they're having to think about now. Um, the deer can can cause millions of dollars of damage on an annual basis to states like Georgia, South Carolina, Alabama, where we've heard this issue kind of coming up. Yeah. Um, sorry, I don't know if that notification from my computer, you, you all could hear that. I'll keep going from there. Um, but in 2017, we actually did a study on deer damage in the state of Georgia. That's the latest one that we've had. And they estimated that per farmer, and they surveyed just over about 100 farmers, um, they were each losing about $33,000 a year due to deer. So you total all that up and it can cost millions of dollars um, 
in in a state that's that's having this problem. So fewer Americans are taking up hunting every year. I was reading that. Um, so that you've got the shrinking number of hunters, which means fewer deer can be legally, you know, hunted and tagged. And you attended an event where the Department of Natural Resources uh, was teaching people how to hunt. Kind of set the scene. Where were you and, and what was that like to attend that? Yeah, so these are called hunt and learn events. And the Department of Natural Resources uh, here in the state of Georgia, they host them for different types of animals. So this one was for deer. They also host them for rabbits. I think they host them for turkeys. So there's a few different hunt and learn events that are hosted throughout the year, depending on the hunting season. Um, but this one was hosted at the Charlie Elliott Wildlife Center, which funny enough, Charlie Elliott was the director of the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, oh. who appointed the guy who helped bring back the deer population after we saw a significant decline. I think it was like the 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just thinking about that, but to set the scene, um, they, they accept adults and kids to attend these hunt and learn events. Um, and really, people are just coming to learn how to hunt in a safe environment. And you'll hear from a couple of them in a clip that I think we're going to play. Yes. Yes. Let's play that. I My hopes are to learn something new and outdoors instead of being inside all the time. Uh, because in my streets, you can't see any kids who play outside. They're mostly, mostly inside playing video games or something. I wanted the opportunity to hunt a deer, to harvest a deer, in a safe environment. Uh, I have three bucks in my neighborhood, and they eat everything. They eat anything that's not tied down. It's a way to control the population, legally, and in my opinion, ethically. Ah, so we heard from, you know, quite a a span of of people. We first heard from Greg, an 11-year-old from from uh, Columbus, who does not want to sit around playing video games. He wants to be outside <laughs> with nature. And then Crystal yep. Howley of Fayetteville, uh, who is talking about a more humane way to resource uh, meat on her dinner table. Very interesting. Yeah, so people are coming to hunting for a lot of different reasons, right? Like like you heard in those clips. Um, kids are coming maybe because their parents are forcing them to, but Greg seemed genuinely interested in wanting to learn how to hunt. So that was kind of fun. Um, but but yeah, this idea of of DNR kind of encouraging people to learn how to hunt, it's a part of this strat- strategy that they were telling me about um, that's called R3. And so that stands for recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Um, and declining numbers of hunters is kind of a concern nationwide. Um, a lot of this is like thinking about how many hunters we had 30 to 40 years ago, that number has gone down significantly for a lot of different reasons, right? Maybe changing traditions, urban growth. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that could go into this. Um, and so DNR in Georgia and, and I believe in other states as well, I would imagine, they do want to kind of keep people learning how to hunt, interested in hunting. And of course, it does bring money to the state as well and, and assists with funding wildlife conservation and that sort of thing. So there's there's different reasons why DNR would be interested in, in making sure that hunters are sticking around in the state. Um, but yeah, and you heard from Crystal as well. She was having her own kind of economic constraints from deer right. <laughs> eating the flowers in her garden. Um, and, and so, yeah, just going back to the farmers for a second, um, as you heard in that story, the, the farmer... Um, Neil Lee, he was saying, you know, I just think people should shoot more deer. And so when we're thinking about maybe what that looks like, DNR's efforts to train more hunters might play into that. Uh, very interesting. I Have you ever had deer meat, by the way? 
I have never had venison, but mm-hmm. I would try it if I knew someone who was hunting deer uh-huh. and getting it processed and willing to share. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually would. I think I've heard good things. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, Sophie, you are a reporter here at GPB uh, based in Macon. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thanks, Leah. A corn maze can be great outdoor family fun, but a cornfield can also be great for your mental health. I'm going to take you to a corn maze coming up on Georgia in Play. are back to Georgia in play. I'm Leah Fleming. So I'm a summer baby. I have a July birthday and I love beaches, sitting outside, parties, all of those long days and sunsets. But then the fall comes and I start to feel a bit sad. It gets cooler with the days becoming shorter. And of course, it's back to school. Maybe you feel some of that too. But fall is awesome if you get into the spirit of it. Think pumpkin lattes and apple picking, cozy sweaters, And corn mazes. If fall is not your jam, stick with me because Jeff Manley is about to change your mind. Jeff, you are a maze operator at the Buford Corn Maze. It's been recognized by Country Living as a top 33 corn maze. There are over 500 mazes across the country these days. I've never been to one, although you are telling me I have got to get out to a corn maze and live. What is it that is so cool? What's so cool about corn mazes? Well, you know, corn mazes are just wholesome family fun to start off with. And um, but it's the perfect thing to do when that sort of primordial instinct of fall and harvest uh, hits all of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just have this great desire to get outside in that in those cool evenings, the fall leaf color. And it's just so beautiful. And uh, so to go through a corn maze is uh, almost a rite of passage these days for uh, fall family fun. Uh, now, what exactly is a corn maze? Well, it's um, it, and, and, and honestly, the maze could be any crop uh, that's tall. It could be sorghum. It could be sunflowers. But oh. most of the time it's corn. And what occurs is you create a pattern of trails throughout this crop, this corn crop. And you just navigate through it and you get lost and you hit dead ends and you find your way and you look for clues and it's great fun. (laughs) So I hear that many of these corn mazes are based on artistic designs like characters from movies and and things like that. Is that is that true? You can design them any kind of way? Oh, there's been the Statue of Liberty and different people. Absolutely. You can just about put any depiction in a corn maze oh and they even can even sometimes i guess tell stories um talk a little bit about like uh what what we would see at um like a buford corn maze what what do you got yes ma'am well this year um is our 15th year anniversary so we're thanking these communities around the the buford area at for 15 wonderful years of supporting us supporting the families that own this uh, property and this corn maze and uh, this uh, event center. So we're we're really excited about that. So our corn maze has the picture of a 
a little girl and somebody having fun. And, and then it's about 1.3 miles worth of trails. Ah, okay. How did you get into this? Well, really by accident. Uh-huh. Years ago, I started a uh, cattle farm with Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, of all things mm-hmm. cattle farm. And uh, to diversify the farm, which is really what uh, corn maze is, it's the diversification of the farm. It's creating additional revenue. And uh, so we did that. And as the industry grew, uh, so did we and and I and my uh, uh, search to be better. Now, one of the things I heard about um, these corn mazes is that they actually help bring in um, funding for for farms. Is that is that true too? the agritourism, I guess? Yes, ma'am. It really is. And, 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 a, and a corn maze is an activity that really is 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 part of a, a, a larger industry we call agritourism and agritourism is really treating your your people your community almost like a crop you know mm-hmm. um, and it's a it's a magic thing for for generational families to be able to continue to create revenue on the family farm I've been able to do that with my children mm-hmm. but one of the magic things really about agritourism is that if you've got two generations, the grandparents, the parents living on a farm, there's so much revenue, there's only so much revenue that you can generate off of cattle or corn or whatever size farm that they might have. And at some point, you run out of revenue opportunity uh, with a, a commodity crop to be able to to support families. So if the third generation, the fourth generation wants to come back to farm, then they can create this agritourism business, whether it's field trips for kids, it might be weddings, it might be a dove shoot, it might be mm-hmm. corn maze. And um, they can create a revenue stream that, that's new and exciting and bright. And they can um, uh, raise their family on the family farm in addition to the crops that they grow. Uh-huh. So as I was telling you, I haven't been out to a corn maze yet, although I'm on assignment now. I'm going to get out to your maze. Yes, ma'am. But I wanted, I I did go apple picking uh, this fall. And while I was out there, they also had this farm of uh, wildflowers. And I actually found myself just getting lost in my thoughts and in this experience of all these beautiful, I mean, gorgeous wildflowers that you could cut, you know, and, and put into your, you know, your cup that you purchased from them. And what a great experience. I mean, it was just good for my mental health. And I'm wondering, do you remember your first experience going through a corn maze and and just what is that is that like? Well, it, it was. And I, I love your memory of that because it so well depicts the draw that people have to agritourism. And um, I think probably um, I would agree with you. I, I I went to a uh, sunflower festival, which was a, an agritourism event, mm-hmm. and I was just fascinated with how, how big this field of sunflowers was. And it was, it was, uh, it, 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 
it was, I don't say it's a spiritual type of an experience, but it was, it was really a, a, an incredible opportunity to be reflective and just, you know, quiet for a moment. And, and uh, so that, that's part of it, what you experience there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So with this corn, uh, I'm thinking, you know, you can kind of work out all kinds of uh, challenges and problems, you know, almost like, is it like a crossword puzzle, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. You can have clues. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you get to a clue, it might be a, a, a point of trivia. It could be a, a baseball statistic. Who knows what it could be, whatever your theme is. Mm-hmm. And if you get if you get the question right, you take a left. You know, one answer is a, a right turn, and the next answer might be a left turn. And so if you get your question wrong, <laughs> then you're headed down a dead end. Uh, but if you get your question right, uh, so the clues are wonderful. And then uh, we have we have stations in ours. So the goal is to hit all, all eight or nine stations and, and, uh, and put down on a card what they are. Uh, so that's a, a great challenge, too. Uh, and then what happens to all the corn at the end of this? Well, yes, at the end. So it's field corn. It's not sweet corn. Oh. <laughs> Folks do try to pick it and sneak it in their right. pocket home. <laughs> but <laughs> but they're going to be poorly disappointed uh, when they get there because it's just hard corn. Uh, and what we do is when it dries out, then we will pick it and grind it and turn it into feed for livestock. Oh, okay. All right. It goes to good use. Yes. But I was thinking yes, sweet it corn. Great use. <laughs> Yeah, it's not sweet corn. That's right. (laughs) All right. Jeff Manley, you are a corn maze operator at the Buford Corn Maze. Thank you so much for sharing this. I appreciate it. Miss Lee, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out and send an email to askgip at gpb.org. You can also listen to the show at gpb.org. Chase McGee is our senior producer. Marilyn Ryan is our vice president of news. Victoria Evans-Cash and Buddha Lamb are our engineers. And I'm Leah Fleming. From all of us here at Georgia Public Broadcasting, we wish you well. Talk to you next week.